Well, good morning, your friends. Uh, would you bow with me together as we seek the Lord before we open his word? Lord, we've had a precious time already seeking your face this morning and worshiping you in song. And now we come to you to worship you in your word, Lord. This transcendent word that you've spoken from the heavenlies is an amazing thing. And so I pray, Father, that you will take it way beyond my comprehension and my speaking this morning to the reality that it is the very words of God, and you would penetrate it where it needs to be in each of our souls, Father. So we look to you to minister to us, to meet with us, O Holy Spirit. Pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may see. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you turn with me this morning to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the first chapter, I'm going to read this and come back and we'll make some comment and spend a little time in it this morning. This is the Word of God, chapter 1. It's the prayer of Nehemiah, and I'm going to read right through to the end of the first chapter. A lot of it's his prayer. I'd like you to listen. Follow along if you'd like. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, as we get into here, there's a, there's a number of things we need to think about when we think about context. This is uh, Nehemiah, uh, probably about a third, second or third generation Israel, uh, Israelite after the exile, after the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity about 150 years before by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he finds himself, amazingly, a man of God in this pagan court, and he is a cupbearer to the king. Now, there's lots of discussion about the cupbearer. In some respects, it would be like a security guard, a personal security force. In some ways, um, it was like a butler. He took care of the king. He made sure that the wine that came to the king was not poisoned. He uh, took care of the food. He watched over the king when he slept. He had a very privileged position. So he must have been a man of character, a man of ethics. And here he finds himself hearing some news about the walls 
in Jerusalem who have not been rebuilt for 150 years. Now, they, they tried to rebuild them a number of times, but they were still collapsed, unable to be rebuilt. And further, while the walls would be protection for the city, his people back in Jerusalem, more than that is the fact that they are facing tremendous mockery. I mean, here it is, these people, the people that claim to be the people of the living God. And yet, where's God? Doesn't look like he's showing up to help them much. And so they were, they were a source of mockery and, and, and uh, maligning. And you, you see that throughout history, really, with, with God's people. So there was great trouble and disgrace here. And Nehemiah hears of these things, and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. He has a passion for the things of God. Now, as we get into here, we have to understand, think of this man before we get specifically to his prayer. We think about passion, this idea of passion. I looked it up in the Webster's Dictionary. It's interesting. It even mentions, under the definition of passion, the sufferings of Christ in the Webster's Dictionary. Interesting. Suffering or agony is of a martyr. And in the end, what we're talking about here is there's this strong emotion, this strong movement in a man or woman's soul that's so overpowering and compelling, it moves them to action. It's not just that they're moved emotionally, but it moves them to do something. I can't just sit here. And that's the passion of, of Nehemiah here as he moves into this prayer. And then when you see in verse 4, just before he begins to pray, the, the context again, we look at it here, and it says he sat down and he wept. Now he hears of his people and he hears of the mockery and he hears of the mockery of God and it moves him to mourn, to actually shed tears. That's quite a passion. When was the last time we wept over the things we see? It's interesting. And if you go in the context here, um, you would see in, in here, in, in Nehemiah 1, and if you went to Nehemiah 2, you would realize that this prayer unfolded, this time of prayer, this mourning and fasting and praying unfolded over four months. So this man spent tremendous time for four months mourning and fasting and praying. He sees the need. He has eyes to see, eyes to see that which God sees. That God's people, yes, are defenseless, but God's name is being disgraced in this situation. God's name's being disgraced. And this is an interesting theme, again, when we build the context to understand in Scripture this idea of seeing as God sees. If you go in other places in the Scripture, particularly the New Testament, you, you hear Jesus in Luke 10 talking about, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Think of what Rick shared earlier in that verse you shared, Rick, about all of a sudden their eyes were opened. It wasn't like they didn't see what was going on, but they really didn't see. They really didn't hear until God opened them up to the reality of the spiritual realm. And Jesus said the kingdom is hidden. He talks about a mystery in 1 Corinthians 1 and other places. There's something about the things of God. They have to be revealed to us. We can't, unless God does it, we're stuck. But God gives us eyes to see. And then there's the spiritual reality. Bill talked about it last week in Ephesians 6, that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. See, we think it's flesh and blood. We think it's politics. We think it's economics. We think it's world powers. But that's not what we wrestle with. There are rulers, authorities, principalities, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. There's something spiritual behind this. In fact, quickly, turn with me to um, 2 Kings chapter 6 just to see one of the places this, this shows up. It's a very interesting story of the king of Aram, and um, he's at war with Israel. 2 Kings chapter 6, and now I'm going to start at verse 13, but just to build the context quickly, is that he's continually, these Arameans are continually trying to attack Israel, but every time they do, it's like the Israels know they're going to attack. They can never kind of set the trap. 
And it comes, it comes to, you know, to light that the reason that this is happening is that there's this prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha. And he knows what's going on. God gives him insight and gives him pictures and vision of what's going on before it ever happens. So this king, king of Aram is ticked. And he's going to try to now stop Elisha. So you get down here and you look at verse 13. And so he's telling his men, the king of Aram, go find out where this guy, he is, meaning Elisha, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. And the report came, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. Okay? So there's Elisha, and he's got a servant with him whose name is Gehazi. And they're in this city, and they're surrounded now by this human army. Folks, a real army, like real horses, real weapons, the real deal, just like we see in our world today. This isn't mythology. This isn't just a story. This is real. There's an army surrounding this city. So the servant of the man of God, which is Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, gets up in the morning, went out early in the morning, and, the, and this army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. So he runs into Elijah and says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. And Elisha says, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes, meaning the servants, so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, there was this army of angels completely surrounding the human army. Gehazi didn't see it. Elisha knew it. And he said, open his eyes. And it was like this supernatural moment of window into the spiritual realm, and boom, he could see it. And I almost wonder what would happen in our city and our lives if somehow for a moment God would let us see what's going on. You know, in California, I used to take men up on a hill. I ministered in a city there for three years, my wife and I did. And I would take them up on a mountain behind our house. California was more conducive to that than Kansas, right? Mountains, you know. But it was really cool because you could go up in this mountain, you could overlook the whole city. And I would take men up there and we'd pray, and it would be that. Lord, let us have eyes to see what's going on abuse and pain and broken families and well the gospel's going out over there and there's probably a little a couple little old ladies sitting over there praying in their house asking God to do something and the things that we could see if God were to open the realm and the demonic and the angelic and all that's going on it would be amazing it's a spiritual reality and Nehemiah has some sense of this spiritual reality. And we could go down when Jesus talks about the multitudes and, and he ministered in, why he ministered to the multitudes, he had compassion as he saw there, you know, there were sheep without a shepherd. And can you see, can you see the fields are white on the harvest? He kept telling his men, can you see this? We could go on and think of Paul and Moses. They, they had great passion in Romans 9. Paul talks about, in a sense, if you read that, he'd be willing to give up the salvation that his own people would come to know the reality of the gospel. When was the last time we prayed like that? Moses, same way. Lord, if you won't forgive the people, wipe out my name too. That's a passion, folks. There's something going on in a human soul that sees something beyond most of our mundane life when, when they are expressing something like that. I think of a, a book I read uh, by Oz Guinness, Prophetic and Timeliness. He, he mentions this interesting story and while in one sense it's not real spiritual, but it's a great illustration, he talks of this fresh French resistance leader in World War II was once asked how he explained that he and his men were so hero heroic in fighting the Nazis. He thought for a while and then answered, we were not hero heroic, we were simply maladjusted enough to know that something was seriously wrong. Now think about this a moment. 
maladjusted enough to know that something was seriously wrong. Seen one way, the reply reveals the perspective that led to the courage for them to break with their own people and take on the Nazis. Seen another way, it also reveals the pain that lay behind the stance. But the perspective and pain are linked. The position that gives the benefit of the perspective is the same position that brings the burden of the pain. You see that? There's this perspective you see outside of what the media is saying, you see outside of what normal mundane life looks like, and you're going, there's something else going on here, and God gives you eyes to see it. But at the same perspective of having eyes to see it, it brings a pain, it brings a burden. And you see this again with Nehemiah. Wept, mourn. This whole sitting down is a, is a Hebrew kind of idea, idiom of that's what they did when they grieved. They, they, they sat down, they bowed. So he says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed, again, four months of this. And this fasting, although we don't have time to get into it today, is this, this whole position of humility, which is so lost in our culture. That's what fasting is about. It's about a denial of self. That's why people fast. It's denial of self. It's to seek God and to, to be serious with the things of God. It's extraordinary. It's crying out with God in humility and dependence on him. It's extraordinary night and day. And for Nehemiah, not only is it extraordinary in just its activity, but it's a great risk for him because in his position, he is not supposed to come to the king with some kind of emotional grievousness on his face. I mean, there could be a concern. Is this guy plotting something against the king? What's going on? He was always supposed to come with this uh, consistent nature about himself. So he's taking a great risk with losing sleep and losing food and still coming before the king in this mourning kind of position. He's taking great risks. And it had to be serious. If you think about what we're talking about here, it's a spiritual reality. I mean, they tried to rebuild the wall a number of times. See, it's not about the machinery. It's not about the methodology. It's about, is God going to show up and use this and do something? And so there was this appeal to God, the spiritual reality. Ian Bounds is a pastor, um, actually pastored in, in uh, Missouri um, over 100 years ago. And he writes this, and it's interesting to me because he wrote this in 1907, and I just I look at this and I go, this just continues to apply every generation, over and over and over. Listen to what he says. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men and women. He does not come on machinery, but on men and women. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. See, some things never change. Methodologies are going to change. Systems are going to change. I had a good talk yesterday with one of, the, one of the college students, college workers, and we talked about this. And we get so hung up on this and think things aren't going to work. And College guys, there's going to be all new methodologies and systems that you're going to use that my generation didn't. But some things never change. God anoints people of prayer. It won't be the systems that he anoints. He can use those. He can use this building, but blows this building down and we still have the church. We're still, you can't stop it. It continues to move on and on and on. And in other examples in the scriptures, you can think of Moses and David and Daniel. You look at their prayer lives. Supremely our Lord. It's amazing when you think about just this idea of prayer. You look at Jesus' life. He began his ministry in prayer. When the heavens were open and the dove came down, he prayed all night before he chose the twelve. Think of that. Just think. He spent all night praying. And just ponder that a moment. What did our, this, look at our lives this last week. What did our weeks look like? What did our days look like? He spent all night praying before he chose the 12. And then a little bit out of character for Jesus, it seemed like, is he went into the temple where they, were, where they were selling goods and ripping the people off, if you remember the scene, and he went and he began to turn over tables. 
And I don't know if you remember what his response to that whole situation was. He says, my, this is my father's house. It shall be a house of prayer. Not a house of activity, not a house of ministry stuff, a house of prayer. That was his concern, mocking the very sense of coming into the intimacy and the presence of God. And then further, he prayed alone by himself so often. It's another interesting thing that his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And that's interesting because if you go through the Gospels, they never say, teach us to preach. Teach us to have a Bible study. Teach us to do church. Those are all wonderful things. I'm not mocking those. But the primary thing that they came to Jesus was, was teach us to pray. And then you go to the book of Acts and you see it. The minister, the church began in prayer. Even the apostles, when, when the, the, the uh, numbers of people began to expand, you see it in Acts chapter 6, and they had to appoint deacons to feed people and take care of people. What did they say? We've got to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. A ministry of prayer. A ministry to go behind closed doors, shut the door, and spend hours alone with God. That, that was the ministry. It wasn't setting up systems and machinery and all that, although some of that needs to be done. We understand that. We're, we live in a real world and we have to do systems. And, but ultimately, God anoints something different than that. And so we see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in the life of history. It's amazing when I go in history. I told the first service for some of you, it's probably, I mean, I guess everybody's doing this now, but Google, just Google in praying Hyde, H-Y-D-E, guy by the name of John Hyde. He was a missionary to India. Not very eloquent speaking, not a great theologian. And the guy went as a missionary to India, was falling on his face. Things weren't happening. And he began to pray. And there's this whole story of his life of prayer and what he saw as a result of prayer. And it's fascinating. This man was so passionate about prayer, about seeking God and asking God to do something. Not only were, were dozens and hundreds and thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but you could go into his little hut years later and there were floorboards in this hut. You could go there and you could see where John Hyde prayed because there were grooves wore in the floor, floorboards of the floor where he would get on his knees and he would cry out to God. And he actually wore the wood down in his room. I don't know about you, but I haven't wore out any carpeting yet. I got a lot of work to do. Wearing out the wood underneath you. Amazing. I think of another, I could tell you many, many stories, to be honest with you. I've, I've, been around the world and seen many people who could tell you incredible experiences. One I think of right now is a man by the name of Sammy Tippett, who was a pastor and evangelist here in the United States, and then, well, actually internationally, but he ended up becoming a pastor in Romania, um, oh, 15, 20 years ago, during what we would call the Cold War. Now, college folks, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. You've heard about it. But I lived through that. That was a really, a, a, you know, those of us who are older understand, there was this huge world power known as the Soviet Union, and we were waiting any day for somebody to push a button, and who's going to push the first button and blow us up and have a nuclear war? I mean, it was serious, serious stuff. This is a serious, serious government and a serious group of people, the, the former Soviet Union. Now, that doesn't exist anymore. It came apart. How did it come apart? Sammy Tippett talks in his book on the, uh, the prayer factor, talks about what was happening in Romania prior to the, all the political changes in the former Soviet Union. Folks, it was a spiritual revival that happened there. You're not going to read that. You're not going to hear about that in the university and in your textbooks. But that's what happened. When they called the church of Romania under persecution to pray, it was standing room only. Standing room only. And Sammy Tippett came back to America to try to bring a message to Americans because here if you called people to pray, there might be 12 or 15 people, if you were lucky, show up. It said something about our perspective. 
standing room only. And I had a taste of that when I went over there right after the, the wall came down, as we call it, and then we had freedom to run in there. I was there within that first year. And I got a chance to go into, into Lithuania. It was an amazing experience. I'm standing, if you can imagine, I'm standing like where I am right now. And right behind me is the door and the walls to the KGB office that literally, two, three, four months before that, were persecuting, killing Christians. And I'm standing here on the steps preaching the gospel to masses of people, just like all of you standing here. And there were guys with paintbrushes painting. As I explained the gospel, we talked about it in simple terms. They were painting it on the walls of the KGB office. And then you'd go meet with Christians, and they didn't have buildings like this for the most part. They'd all been bulldozed down. But I remember going to this home and asked to come there and speak and give a word. Uh, Christians gathered there on Sunday, and they spent the whole day together ministering and in prayer. And I got to this little place, and it was jam-packed. People were literally, and I'm not exaggerating, hanging out the windows. They opened all the windows on this place, and people were lined up outside to listen in. And I remember talking to one woman and her daughter. They traveled that morning, and they did this every week on a six-hour train ride just to be there. And they did it every week. Prayer, the pursuit of God, seeking of God, and it changes entire cultures. It changes all of history. Well, Nehemiah's in this. You see this in here. And so we get into Nehemiah's prayer, specifically 5 through 11. Flip back there. And you begin to see here the first thing he does. He seeks the Lord. As you see here, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. The God of heaven is Yahweh, the God who's really there, the God who's like really exists, you know? Like he's really there, and you can really communicate with him, you can really speak to him, you can really uh, pray to him. And there's this rich theology in here. He's this covenant keeping God, as we go down here, who keeps his covenant with, of love with those who love him and obey his commands. And now we're under this incredible covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, this, this incredible promise and pardon that God has given us in the cross of Christ as we cast ourselves on it, and we are immersed in this incredible work of God. The covenant of God. And Nehemiah is appealing to all this. He appeals to God's revealed character. It's a faith and trust in the God who's really there. It's not praying to oneself. It's not something mundane. He's actually crying out to the living God. Then you get to verse 6 and 7, and it's very interesting what happens when people began to truly seek the living God. Not just to have a quiet time, not a devotional time, particularly even when we gather corporately. And people begin to say, God, we want to see you. We want you to show up. We're here to meet with you. Look what happens. You'll see this in 6 and 7. It's a natural response and a natural reaction. He goes on and he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You see, the minute you begin to look truly on the God who's really there, the reality of the living God, the natural response in contrast is to see ourselves and realize how unholy and unrighteous and wicked we really are. See, the standard is not ourselves. We often do that, compare ourselves to one another. That's not the standard. The standard is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And this is corporate and individual. And you see this in the scriptures. It's interesting to me. Go to like Isaiah 6 where, where uh, Jesus walked, or I mean, excuse me, Isaiah walks into the throne room. And when he sees the living God on his throne, he falls down on his face, folks. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. And our lips truly reveal what's going on in our souls according to the scriptures. You see, it's not a, 
jumping up and down and getting excited kind of thing. There's a time for that to worship God. But usually when we come into the presence of God in this way like Nehemiah does, the first thing it brings you to is you see yourself in contrast to his holiness. And it's an awful sight. I think of Peter. Um, one of the first times I thought about this, of course, I probably read it at some time in the scripture, but Peter in Luke uh, chapter 5, and I remember seeing this in the Jesus film put out by Campus Crusade. It was just a wonderful scene to me. It's where Jesus um, does the miracle of catching all the fish, and Peter's in the boat with them. And if you've ever seen the film, there's this moment where, and the scriptures actually tell us that Jesus revealed his glory. Again, their eyes open to the reality of who God is. And what did Peter do? He fell down on his face and he said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I mean, what else could he do? But see himself for who he really was. It's an incredible picture. And so we see here that uh, Nehemiah is confessing the sins of himself, of his people, of even the generations before, seeing, you know, we have been a sinful people. And we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. I mean, he covers all, all the bases. And when we begin to think about this, this would be another message in itself, but when we begin to think about sin, folks, so often when I speak on this, and, I, and some of you may have heard me address this before because I speak in, in campus settings and other settings, and I'm always bringing this up, because we tend to think of sin as these, these do's and don'ts, these ten major things. And then we think, well, I'm pretty good. But we really don't understand the depth of sin often, this, this sense of the inner desires, the inner attitudes that live in our lives. And let me, uh, let me just read something to you from C.S. Lewis. He touches on this, and I love how he says it. I, I, I tried earlier to say it without reading it as well, and I think reading it does better. Um, he's talking about the Christian's life in their growth, and they begin to look at their lives. And here's what he says. We begin to notice something as we grow. Besides our particular sinful acts, and that's what I was just talking about, which we typically think of, we begin to notice something else, and it's our sinfulness. We begin to be alarmed not only about what we do, but about what we are. This may sound difficult, so I'll try to make it clear for my own case. When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious is some sin against love, love against other people particularly. I have sulked or snapped, sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected I was caught off my guard. I had not time to collect myself. Now that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those acts, because they obviously would be worse if they were de deliberate and premeditated. But on the other hand, now listen closely. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence of what sort of man he really is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness doesn't create the rats, it only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man, it only shows me what an ill-tempered man I really am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover. Apparently, the rats of resentment and vindictiveness and hatred are always there in the cellar of my soul. Now that cellar, now listen to this, now that cellar is out of the reach of my conscious will. I can, to some extent, control my acts. But if, like what I said before, what matters even more than what we do, if, if what really matters is, is who we are, then I realize that what I most need to undergo is a change that my own direct voluntary efforts cannot bring about. And this applies to my good actions, too. How many of them were done for the right motive? How many for fear of public opinion or a desire to show off? How many from a sort of obstinacy or sense of superiority, which in a different circumstance might equally have led to some very bad act? But I cannot, by my direct moral effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, now listen, 
we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about confession. See, see, you cannot fix, a good friend of mine says it this way, and I love the statement, you cannot fix and manage a corrupted heart. Folks, every one of us in here have corrupted hearts. You, you can try to pretend that you've cleaned it up, but you don't fix and manage it. My heart is corrupted. It will be till the day I die. Now, I can experience forgiveness, and I can have new passions placed in my life that overcome that in many respects, but it's still there. So the only thing I can do, the only thing you can do about a corrupted heart is to confess it. That's where repentance comes in. It's this beautiful picture that God, the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, because of what he's done on the cross, has given me grace, and he's shed his blood, and he's provided a way for me to continually stay in constant repentance with him, in constant fellowship with him about the reality of my soul. I'm not fooling him, and I'm not fooling anybody else. That's repentance. And you see, that's what Nehemiah goes to. He starts calling on God. He's looking to God because of this great burden. His eyes have been opened. And right away, it brings him right to the reality of, you know what, we're the problem. It's not that God hasn't showed up. It's not the methodology. It's not the machinery. I'm the problem. Cyril Barber writes, uh, writes a commentary on Nehemiah on leadership. Any of those, particularly some of you that are interested in business and stuff, it's a wonderful little booklet on leadership. But he says this. Listen to this. This is a wonderful quote. The self-sufficient do not pray, they simply talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray, they have no knowledge of need. The self-righteous cannot pray, for they have no basis in which to approach a holy God. Now think about that, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. I have to ask the question in my own life, and I would say I would submit it to you, we should ask the question in our lives, why is our prayer so weak? Is it just a lack of discipline? See, I fear it's just not just a lack of discipline. It's something ugly in my heart, a self-sufficiency and a self-righteousness that I think I'm cruising through life pretty well. In America, we can do it pretty well. That's why somebody in Romania who's watching their family be tortured and suffering under persecution runs to prayer. How long do we have to wait? What do we have to endure before we get to that point? So there's this great need for repentance. It's a thread through history of God's people. It's not orchestrated. It's, it, it truly is a sorrow and a brokenness over the reality of our souls. And you see now, you go to verse 8 and 9. Notice Nehemiah here. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from here, there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Notice he says, remember. Now, did Nehemiah need to ask God to remember? Of course not. What, what is he doing? He's, he's, he's appealing with a confidence in God's purposes. That this is about God, that God has provided something through faith and trust in him. We can have an expectancy and a persistence to pursue this holy God because it's his name that is at stake. It's about his name. And we could go into another quick discussion. It's just a little bit of a sidebar. In this context, we're talking about the nation of Israel. And, and there was a little bit different setup in the covenant in the, for the nation of Israel than there is in the new covenant under the shed blood of Christ. And that is this, is that the judgment came to this entire group of people known as the nation of Israel in their bloodline as Hebrews, but not all of those people were regenerated. They truly weren't all people of God, even though as a people group they were. And so God had these things about judgments, if you don't obey me here and you don't obey me here, I'm going to do this. 
And so now, while we're under the blood of Christ, something different is unfolding, but we can't miss this, okay? Yes, Romans 8 would say, no con- we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer under the judgment of God. We've been set free, which is amazing in itself. But at the same time, God is a just God, and he's created a moral universe. He's created a very moral world, just like a world with gravity. You can't get out of it. And so if you violate a moral universe, there will be a consequence. And it's not like God's sitting there with a big brick or stick ready to hit somebody over the head. It's the natural consequence, and he uses it in discipline and chastening of our lives. You cannot, listen to me, you cannot violate a moral universe, which means you cannot participate in sin without some consequence. There will be a breakdown in a relationship. There will be a hardening of your heart. You don't get away with it. I minister in the jail every week, and I look at those guys, and I say, you don't get away with it, do you? And they kind of chuckle, but you don't. Sooner or later, somewhere along the line, maybe not even on this earth, it will catch up with you. And at the same time, I would suggest we do see the pains of this earth in our relationships and all sorts of different things. So you cannot violate a moral universe. And so the promise here, he goes to God, he's, uh, he's persistent, he's seeking God, he's confident in God. And in, in the passage here, the key word is, if you return to me and obey my commands, that's repentance. If you return to me and turn from your wicked ways and turn back to me the way I've called you to turn back, ha, I will come and make my dwelling among you. Now, I spoke here in a year and a half ago about that, the whole sense of the presence of God. And you see this in the Old Testament. Whenever you see his name, his name on something means his presence. He's there. And so God says, if you will repent, I will make my name known there. Now, remember what I said earlier about Nehemiah. The big deal was, yes, the walls were broken down, and that was a functional kind of deal, but it was beyond that. God's name seemed to be removed from there. They were being mocked. And so this whole thing is about the glory of God, of lifting up the name of God, a dwelling for his name. It's about him. And even the forgiveness of their sins. Folks, look through the scriptures. It's an amazing thing that you realize that God is the point. God is the center of the whole deal, right down to the forgiveness of our sin. He says in Isaiah 43 and Psalm 25 that he forgives our sin for his sake, not our sake. It's about him. He's glorified. He's magnified when he takes wicked people like me and forgives me and chooses to use me and work in me. I'm no different than the rest of you. It's an amazing thing. I gave an example earlier that I heard another preach, preacher give one time. And um, I don't, it's not a true story, but, but it makes sense. Think about this. We got, just imagine we got this guy by the name of Joe. Joe's heart's failing. He's going to die. He's got, a, he's got a friend, Peter, who deeply loves him and cares for him. And Peter says, why don't you take my heart and give it to Joe? Well, that means you're going to have to lose your life, Peter. And he says, that's okay. Just humanely take me. If you want to use that word, I don't know how to do it. But take my life. Take my heart and give it to Joe. Now, let's just say that unfolded. What would make the headlines of CNN tomorrow across the nation? It wouldn't be about Joe. It would be about his friend Peter who gave of his heart. You see, there's a receiving on this that truly is passive. I'm just the receiver. The giver is the one that's glorified and magnified. And so when God forgives me and God works in my midst and God does stuff in my life, it's not about me. It's about his name being known, about him being lifted up. It's a wonderful picture. It gets, it gets our eyes off ourselves. 
So then verse 10, as we move on here, they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. You see, he sees God's grace. These are the redeemed. These are God's people. And yes, we've sinned. And yes, we've made up, messed up. But we are God's redeemed. We struggle with sin, yes. But God's grace, particularly in this new covenant in the shed blood of Christ, is profound. When he died on the cross, he died for all our sins. Past, present, future. Not just, I mean, the whole package, the whole deal was done with. And we return to him in confession and repentance and saying, God, this is true. And we find something alive in us, something very real. And in fact, it's interesting when we begin to think of prayer in that context of repentance, that even in our weaknesses, if you go to Hebrews 7, it says that Jesus is always living to intercede for us. There's a sense in which Jesus, in this profoundness of the Trinity, right hand of the throne of God, is there communicating to the Father about us, about me. There's something in this that God like, likes me. He likes you. You know, it's easy to theologically say God loves you. But have you ever thought, like, God likes you? I mean, like, you who you are right now, with all your stuff, all your baggage, all this stuff, God likes you. And Jesus is there interceding for us. But then there's another passage in Romans 8 that talks about the Holy Spirit interceding for us with us in our weakness. And the whole context there is that in the context of us seeking God and not even knowing quite how to pray, the Holy Spirit speaks through us. We are the means that God uses, these broken vessels. And that's what God gives God so much glory, folks. It's not that you and I can walk on water. It's that you and I are messed up folks that are broken before him, and he's choosing to use us to do something. It's amazing. Finally, then, in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive let your, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. And it's an amazing story. We certainly don't have time today. You can read it on your own. But what unfolds is, first of all, a pagan king gives all the provision for God's people to go back and build the wall. He provides all the money, everything they need. Imagine what that would look like. We want to do some great missionary effort, and some secular university, some institution said, oh, we'll give you the money to do it. That, that began to happen. They had conflict, and different things happened through Nehemiah, but in the end, the beautiful part is not only did they be, rebuild the wall, and they became a people again, but they had a spiritual revival. If you go to the end of the book, Ezra came back and brought the law back, and it's a wonderful picture that, of the spiritual renewal amongst these people. So it wasn't even about the wall. In the end... It was about them being renewed unto God. Now, I just want to say this, based on my conversation yesterday with a young fellow. It was just great. And uh, you know who you are. I don't want to embarrass you. But we're living in a culture. I have books on my desk. I had a friend send a book to me this week. And I appreciate the concern. But we have people saying, the church has blown it. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Christians are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, they claim one thing, they do something else. You, you college kids are immersed in this sort of thing. There's this thing called the emerging church, all this stuff. We have got to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is not this building. It's people that God, the Holy Spirit, has come on, regenerated, moved in their lives. And here's the point. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church is not a man-made institution. You can't stop it. It can't be stopped. So this whole idea, oh, it's messing up and things aren't happening, it's just not true. It is not true. 
Now, in a fallen world, do we want it to be better? Absolutely. That's why we need to get together in prayer. But I even thought of just one family last night came to my mind, and they were here earlier, and so they said they weren't too embarrassed for me mentioning them. But some of you, and particularly some of your younger ones or some that haven't been here that long, I'm speak, I'd speak to you right now about just one picture, and I could tell you dozens and hundreds of pictures. This family, the Dan Yo family, Dan and Janet Yo. I met Dan 12, 13, 14 years ago. I don't know where he was at spiritually. He didn't come to church. He didn't seem to have much of an interest. He could tell you his own story. I don't, you know, want to embarrass him or anything. But I remember meeting him, and we didn't have hardly anything in common. But I remember thinking, I just need to pray for this guy. No, I'm not profound. I didn't wear any holes in the floors, okay? But I began to pray for Danielle. His wife was coming here to church. Within a few years of that, Dan went through an incredible career crisis. There again, you can ask him about it. He'll, he'll probably be free to share it with you. But, I mean, this man was a brilliant man. He was a, a, a candidate for Rhodes Scholar and everything else. He lost his entire career. The very thing that you guys are all preparing for, he lost. The very thing that you would think, this is it, I've arrived. He lost it all. In that same time period, his son David, who's in our midst sometimes, you might see David walking around. He's a college student. David walks with a, a little bit of a limp, blonde hair, likes to wear his little goatee, right? At that same time period, David was in a severe accident coming off the wetlands in a bicycle and smashed in by a car. And in all practical senses, really, he, he was dead. He was brain dead anyway. And God revived that young man. And it's an amazing, amazing story. He would tell you that it was in the hospital that he met Christ. In the coma, he met Christ. He has a story to tell. And then you look at his life today, and with only one arm and half of his body, the guy plays the piano that will blow your mind. He swims with half of his body. And that entire family was sitting here earlier today, sitting here. And here's the thing for me personally that could get me choked up. But last spring, we had this outreach here within our church for men out at Clay Belcher's place. And we were out there, and I have an illness that kicks in all this stupid time. It's, it's this violent vertigo where everything just starts spinning. It's an inner ear disease. Well, it doesn't, fortunately, hasn't happened too often publicly, but it happened that day. I was supposed to be the MC. So there I am laying down on a bench. Everything's spinning. It's the only thing I can do is hit the deck. And I'm laying back there kind of embarrassed about the whole thing, feeling stupid, and they had to fill in for me. And I, I can't see real well when it's happening, but I looked out of the corner of my eye, and guess who walked up? Dan Yo. And I could see Dan Yo's lips. He began to pray for me. Folks, that whole thing unfolded over 10, 12 years. Most of you would never know about it. And I could tell you dozens and hundreds of stories of that happening here. Yes, there's casualties, and yes, there's pain in a fallen world, but there is profound things happening because God's word is lifted up and because God's people are praying. So my urgency to you this morning is to see Nehemiah, a passion for the things of God, eyes to see, enough to be moved to act to act corporately, to act in community, to yield to this movement of God, his provision, his results, and revival. And may it be true of us, Jonathan Edwards said this in the First Great Awakening in the early 1700s, when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should proceed it with the extraordinary prayers of his people. What would it look like of college age, 11, 10, 12, 13 teenagers, us as a body of people, hundreds of us, were to gather and cry out to God to meet with us. What may happen? It's a profound thought, friends. Pray with me. Lord, as I begin to pray, I, I want to close here, Lord, with the same thing I did earlier today. Father, this great song we sang today, we bow our, heart, we bow our hearts 
We bend our knees. Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast on our idols. That's repentance. And, Lord, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts, Father. Let us not lift our souls to another. And, Father, let us be the generation that seeks you, that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. May we be the generation that seeks, Lord. May you stir us to be people of prayer in our homes and in our workplaces and in our cars and certainly corporately when we have these special privileges and opportunities that people would see way beyond us, Lord, and they'd say something has showed up there and it's way beyond those guys. They, are, they may be gifted, but they aren't that gifted. Lord, that's what I pray for my dear friends here in Jesus' name. Amen.